0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Lots of competitive sports come from ordinary human activity. Our ancestors ran to hunt down food and swam to harvest what was under the water. Down the track and lane, we refined the skills and formalised them into sporting events. Even much more recently, machine-based ways of moving, bicycles, cars, motorbikes got turned into racing competitions. It's what we do. And here on Sporty, we're delving back into the history and prehistory of swimming and pushing forward into the gendered landscape of motorcycle riding and racing. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith. Let's take the plunge first into the story of swimming. Howard Means is the author of Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming, and joins us from his home in Virginia, USA. Howard, let's go back those thousands of years ago. What's the earliest remaining evidence we have of human swimming?
0: The earliest evidence of any kind are, are cave paintings at a place called Wadi Sura in the southwest Egyptian desert 8,000 years old, roughly, you know, give or take uh, 500 years on either side. And the fascinating thing about it to me, at any rate, is that Wadi Sur today happens to be, by the aridity index, the driest spot on the planet. Uh, But what these paintings tell is a story of vast climatological change. And so you get back to something called the African Humid Period, which launched about 12,000 years ago when the Earth wobbled on its axis, which it does periodically, and sent north all those rains you associate with Central Africa, the Congo region, etc. And all of a sudden, what we think of today as the Great Sand Sea, the Sahara, was a very habitable place, pockmarked with lakes, river systems, And in this place called Wadi Sora, people obviously knew how to swim because they painted on the walls of this cave many, many people doing the doggy paddle.
1: Yes. Now, this is, of course, is the cave of swimmers made famous. Yes, uh, from the English patient. Michael Ondaatje's novel and then the film. Yes. Describe what the little figures look like in these in these paintings.
0: Well, they really do look like they're doing doggy paddle. Their arms are down on either side of them. Their feet are kicking. Clearly, they're going up and down. Their heads are raised out of the water. I mean, scholars debate whether these pictographs were meant to actually show swimming or to show people swimming through another region between life and death, a kind of a purgatory uh, known as non. But even if that's the case they knew what people looked like when they were swimming, and they should have, because there was a river system that ran right through this plateau that they lived on. And, you know, they would have swum for food, for fishing. And so they had an aquatic life.
1: Well, moving on somewhat, the best documented swimming cultures of the ancient world really are the Greeks and Romans. And Plato says, doesn't he, that a man is not learned until he can read, write and swim. And one of the most beloved stories of the Greeks is of Leander swimming the Hellespont to his lover, Hero. Just remind us of that
0: story. Oh, it was a wonderful open water romance <laughs> A hero was a priestess who lived in a, a lonely tower at Sestos, and Leander was her lover who uh, lived on the other side of the Hellespont at Abydos, and um, every night she would light the lantern in her, her tower window, and Leander, guided by the uh, light, would swim to her across this tempestuous body of water until the fateful night, and I sound like a 50s uh, teenage song, until the fateful night when a storm he- He set out despite the weather, despite the roiling seas, and the storm blew her light out, her lantern out, and he drowned. And she saw his body wash up on the shore and leapt from her tower to join him. And this was such a—I mean, it it was a story that everybody knew. It was part of the the popular culture of the Greeks and then later of the Romans.
1: Yes, it's a story though that doesn't end well, does it? (laughs) No. (laughs) But what what stroke did ancient Greeks and Romans swim with. Is there any evidence to tell us that?
0: There is. There's plenty of evidence, actually. Mostly, the most compelling evidence I found were a series of coins from the second and third century, uh, and they were commemorating the, uh, the the tragic love of Leander and Hero. And in every one of them, Leander is doing a kind of a water ballet version of Australian crawl, although I wouldn't have called it Australian crawl, obviously. Uh, over arm, you know, one arm after the other. And, you know, his hands are sort of pointed up at either end, as you might do if you were trying to really make a ballet out of the whole thing. But it was clearly crawl.
1: And there's also some other evidence on Greek vases and mentions in Ovid and other Roman poets too, like Propertius. Yes. Yeah. Th- their evidence tells us that women swam as well as men.
0: Absolutely. The Mediterranean cultures—you know—these people learned how to swim. The men learned to swim primarily, initially, for military reasons. It was a great edge in battle. And Herodotus and all sorts of people talk about the edge it gave you in battle. Uh, Caesar was himself a famous swimmer, but but women swam, women bathed, women swam. Uh, it was a communal activity. And it was also done for the sheer pleasure of it. The Greeks and the Romans were the first culture in which people swam just for the fun of swimming. And there's this spectacular Tomb of the Diver from about the 4th century BC that shows this beautiful painting of a guy just diving off a tower into the Mediterranean for the sheer joy of going into the water.
1: The extraordinary thing, though, is that in Europe uh, for more than a thousand years, swimming just kind of... Disappeared In the medieval world, it really just wasn't the done thing. Uh, and that's, I guess, as much about an attitude to bodies and to flesh as much as anything. The Greeks and Romans swam naked, mm. but that wasn't okay once you get into the Christian medieval period in Europe. But from the Renaissance, with with the revival of so much of classical culture, a revival of swimming also starts, And one of the most famous feats to come out of that revival was to once again swim the Hellespont, actually done this time by a poet.
0: Indeed, by George Gordon, Lord Byron, not only the most famous poet of his era, but also the most famous swimmer, in part because he publicized his feats a great deal. But yes, in 1810, Byron and his friend, Lieutenant Eckenhade, set off to swim. In April of 1810, they set off to swim the Hellespont, and they didn't make it. There was a strong tide. It was going to sweep them out to sea. so they tried again in early May. And in an hour and 10 minutes, they crossed the Hellespont. And actually, Eckenhead crossed it in an hour and five minutes. But Byron does not like to have that fact mentioned. He never mentioned it again, as far as I know. Byron publicized everything he did. He would have loved selfies, and he publicized this and made swimming. He put the whimsy into waves.
1: And and he, he really says that he was more proud of that sporting achievement than any of his literary accomplishments.
0: Exactly. Yes, yes, yeah.
1: Now, there's still an annual race across the Hellespont from Europe to Asia, mm-hmm. the Bosphorus International Swim. It's billed as the world's oldest swimming race. How hard an open water swim is it?
0: It's like any race in open water, in open seawater. It depends on the tides and if you get the right tides. Hundreds and hundreds of people complete it every year. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's more for the romance of it, I think, than for the challenge. If you want a challenge, there are many other things you can do.
1: What stroke, by the way, did Byron use to swim the Bosphorus back in 1810?
0: Byron, like every one of his contemporaries in Europe at that time, would have used the breaststroke. This is, this is the amazing thing to me, the, the knowledge of freestyle in Europe, of the crawl, what we think of as freestyle now, simply disappeared. When English, early English proponents of swimming were trying to encourage people back in the water, they weren't teaching them strokes, they were trying to get them over their fear of even putting their foot in the water. But breaststroke also served a practical purpose because a lot of these waters were polluted. The Thames was polluted. The Serpentine where a lot of races were held in London was polluted. And the advice was always to hold your mouth four inches out of the water. And to do that you really have to get your it it it, it, it ruins the dynamics of the modern breaststroke.
1: Well, while the overarm stroke had been lost in that long disappearance of swimming in Europe, what were other cultures around the world, you know, Africans, Pacific Islanders, Native Americans doing?
0: Uh, You know, indigenous populations... uh place after place after place continued to do the crawl, basically, that's how we learned how to do the crawl. Westerners learned how to do the crawl. Uh, There are tons of reports of early traders down the African coast, marveling at the swimming skills of coastal Africans Magellan marveled at the swimming skills of Micronesians. Uh, Early explorers of America, the painter George Caitlin, wrote uh, elegetically about the swimming capacities of indigenous Americans. All these people were doing the crawl. If, if, If swimming is a utility stroke to get you from one place to another in a hurry, crawl is the way to do it.
1: So how did it then come back into European cultures?
0: under rough terms, actually, two Native Americans, uh, indigenous Americans, flying gall and tobacco were visiting London in 1844. They were kind of a curiosity, natural museum type draw, and somebody invited them to a competition. There were a lot of purse races in London at that time. Swimming was a was a was a betting sport, as everything else was in London. And so, Flying Gull and Tobacco show up, and Flying Gull beats Tobacco in this race by seven feet, and they both beat anybody else because they're all doing breaststroke and they're doing a kind of a windmill crawl they beat everybody else by, you know, half the pool. And I I tried to calculate the time from the rough reports in the London Times, and it was about a 31-second, 50-yard freestyle, which would barely be respectable for a 12-year-old today. Mm. Uh, But it both amazed the Europeans and appalled them because it was not a graceful stroke. It was thrashing, (laughs) and uh, it was denounced in the London Times as as a grotesque stroke.
1: We should, though, mention that in the development of that (laughs) so-called grotesque stroke (laughs) in Australia, Frederick Cavill, the the swimming professor who'd come from England to Sydney, and the Solomon Islander, Alec Wickham, both really developed what became known as the Australian Crawl.
0: Absolutely, yes. They get all credit for it.
1: And this is around 1900.
0: Yes, yeah. And then there was a period in between called the Trudgeon Crawl. Uh, A a guy named Trudgeon, who was traveling in South America, saw uh, Indigenous Americans there doing both the crawl stroke and the side stroke And he combined the two into something called the trudging Crawl, which was quite popular before the Australian Crawl took hold.
1: Which had the up and down flutter kick.
0: Yes, the up and down flutter kick. Right, exactly. What we associate today with freestyle.
1: You're listening to Sporty with Amanda Smith and Howard Means, who's the author of Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming. Now, Howard, if swimming the Hellespont was swimming's first great feat, the second in the Western world was to swim the English Channel, Uh, there'd been many attempts in the 19th century, but it wasn't achieved until 1875, and that was by a British Navy, Captain Matthew Webb. Now, how famous did that make him? How was that achievement viewed?
0: Well, Webb dove into the English Channel at Dover in August of 1875 as relatively well-known because he'd done a couple of swimming feats. He'd rescued somebody at sea, or he tried to rescue somebody. The person died, but he heroically tried to save him. And he emerged 22 hours later in Calais as literally the most famous person in the world. No question about it. It was the Mount Everest of swimming. It was the four-minute mile of swimming. And it's, it's a hellacious thing to try to do, especially, especially doing breaststroke, because it takes you so long to do it by breaststroke. He was in the water for 22 hours, and during that time, tides change, winds change. He got within five miles, I think it was, of Calais and just treaded water, basically, or held his own for seven hours mm. before he could make any progress forward. So he gets out of the water in Calais. And he is suddenly the most famous person in the world. And for another, oh gosh, uh, 50 years, to conquer the English Channel made you automatically, if not the most famous person, well, then one of the most. In 1926, the American Gertrude Ederle finally became the first woman to swim it. And she returned to New York to a ticker tape parade that brought two million people out into the streets. I mean, it's amazing to think of it.
1: And the notable thing about her is that uh, she didn't do it breaststroke. She was the first swimmer to do it with an overarm stroke, yeah?
0: Exactly. Yes, yes, exactly. Good point.
1: And Gertrude Edel swam the English Channel in 14 hours and 39 minutes in 1926. In much more recent times, it's been crossed in under half that time, less than seven hours. it means the author of Splash, 10,000 Years of Swimming, will be back with us on Sporty next week to continue the story with the last 100 years or so in the long history of human swimming. In that period where we left the swimming conversation, end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, that was when a whole different way for us to move on land, to get from A to B and to race was developing. The internal combustion engine created the motor car and the motorcycle. And it's to the motorcycle that we're turning now. Mostly throughout its history, the motorbike has been associated with men, rebellious, macho, thrill-seeking. Women have also always ridden and raced motorbikes, but as outliers and oddities. Two Queensland women who are challenging and changing this default position are Gemma Wilson in Gympie and Ash Ivory in Brisbane. Gemma, for 15 years you were a professional off-road motorcycle racer and a very successful one. What led you into racing?
2: For me it was a slow burn. I grew up out of town outside of Gympie in the bush and it was sort of just a Sunday thing to do. My dad and older brother and all their friends would go riding. So I got involved and then you know, did a couple of local events and then some state events and then some Australian events and then some world events. And it's, yeah, been 15, more than 15 years now and it's been a really exciting ride.
1: And Ash, why did you take to motorcycling? Take us to your first experience with motorcycles.
3: So my first experience was on the back of my dad's K100 motorcycle. So I grew up around bikes quite young and I was often on the back of dad's bike. Uh, and then a little bit later on in a small beach town in far north Queensland, there's tons of property and you generally will find a four-wheeler or a little Peewee 50 or something like that floating around in a friend's shed. And as we would, you know, do, we would drag the bikes out and attach something to it like a an old car bonnet and drag that around and just, you know pass the time on the weekends and just get up to what kids normally do uh,
1: with motorbikes. Uh, Can you just explain putting a a car bonnet on the back of a a motorbike? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You,
3: You generally find an old car or an old Fairmont or something at the back of a shed and usually the bonnets aren't attached that well. So if you turn it upside down, it actually is quite aerodynamic and you can drag it along pretty well. So yeah, we got up to Mischief as kids, but they that was one of my first experiences with bikes.
1: And what about your first road trip on a motorbike?
3: Oh gosh. Um, so I, I had a, a really significant road trip with my dad. So I lost my mum to cancer when I was 18 and connecting with dad was a bit of a tough task. So I thought you know, motorcycles would be a great way to do that. So I ended up riding from Claremont to Morumbah, which is about two hours either way, there and back. And that was my first time r- riding a motorcycle as well. And, and I followed Dad along the highway for two hours and it was a really nice way to connect, but also, you know, really introduced me to highway riding and I fell in love and the rest is history, I guess.
1: Mm. Gemma, did you feel a sort of a, from what you're you're describing, there was a sort of family thing for you too around motorcycles and racing?
2: Yeah, definitely. My dad and I also have a really great relationship because of bikes, especially, you know, racing. He was my right-hand man for the first half of my career. And so, you know, loading up the van, driving down to Victoria, it's a lot of time to chat in a car. <laughs> Yeah, he was there for the first few worlds that I did with me as well, um, and I definitely got faster than him and, and outgrew his knowledge and understanding of racing, which did become a bit of a hiccup in our relationship. But then I started doing it on my own, and yeah, we reworked out our relationship in it, and it's still wonderful. And we've still got motorbikes now. We actually rode to Cape York together in 2019, and this year we're going to ride through the Kimberleys together. So we still definitely have our father-daughter moments with bikes.
1: Ash, the the image and and language around motorcycle riding is very often to do with um, notions of freedom and escape and also rebellion. Does any of that apply to why you ride?
3: Yeah, I think so, Amanda. I think the freedom side of things really resonates with me. In my day job, I work for a software company and I commute five days a week on the bike and it's about 40 minutes to an hour each way depending on how the traffic is in the mornings Uh, and if the traffic is a little bit heavy, I can lane filter as well which is definitely a, a sense of freedom outside of what the cars can do. So the word freedom really resonates with with me.
1: And lane filtering is um, that marvellous thing you can do on a motorcycle, which is when you're in traffic, you can weave through the stationary cars.
3: That's right. Yeah. And I think a lot of drivers aren't really aware that it is legal and, and we are allowed to do it. And hopefully it helps, you know, vehicles get to work a little bit quicker if we get out of their way as well.
1: What about, Gemma, uh, rebellion or danger? Is danger part of the appeal? Are you a thrill seeker?
2: <laughs> um, I don't consider myself a thrill seeker. Um, I am a, a coach, so I coach a lot of off-road motorcycling. And my sort of motto is what we do is risky, so let's try and make it the least amount of like, risk as possible. So always weighing up whether something's worth trying or whether you should start smaller and, and get better. And it's all about the correct technique and understanding what's happening underneath you on the bike. So I mean, you're you know, when you're riding off-road, you are trying to go faster and do bigger, better things. But I'm always definitely trying to minimize the risk for sure.
1: Gemma, over your racing career, you won four Australian off-road championships and five women's world cup team championships what sort of what sort of fitness and stamina do you have to have to be an off-road motorcycle racer
2: a lot (laughs) Uh, it's definitely a a whole body sport and events like the international 16 enduro you're riding for seven to eight hours a day for six days in a row Um, but you've also walked like 80 100 kilometers in the week before walking all the tests so that you know what you're about to head into and race um, I guess for you know over a decade it was my nine to five in a way. You know, five days a week I would be riding or and and training and working really hard for it. And now that I've I've retired, I've been retired for coming close to two years. I realize how much exercise I did without even really thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And now that you know I have a job outside of racing motorcycles, I really have to find that time. And it's it's something that I'm really. It's, I'm finding it hard to come to terms with, yeah, that I used to be so fit and I'm not quite as fit as I used to be anymore.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we can all relate to that, I think.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I've joined the normal world in that regard.
1: (laughs) Gemma, did you ever get a hard time racing on account of being a woman?
2: Um, I don't think, you know, outright, openly, specifically, And I I definitely think in the first 10 years, even if someone was being, you know, a bit awful towards me because I was a girl, I don't think I would have picked up on it because I was um, a very overly optimistic person. But of course, as you get a bit older, um, you get a bit more cynical. And I think that last few years, I did notice a few moments from specific people. Sometimes, yes, but I definitely didn't let it stop me at all. And it's just made me very mindful of it. And, you know, doing little things every day and every time I'm interacting with people, to not open up women in motorcycling to any of that, you know, stereotypical and sometimes negative views that some people have with women and riding motorcycles.
1: Mm. What about for you, Ash?
3: Yeah, similar to Gemma, although I think uh, just being more a motorcycle enthusiast and not someone that does it professionally, I think that invites a little bit more conversation or opinion around whether women should ride or not. I've definitely had the gamut of comments about women who should ride, women shouldn't, and, you know, the risks. And a lot of people uh, just don't really like bikes as well. So, I think it's one of those hobbies or sports that invite a lot of opinion. And I've definitely heard A lot of it, um, I run a moto meet once a month here in Brisbane. And so we really actively try and bring the community together and, you know, bring a lot of different backgrounds and a lot of different people together to try and Foster that inclusivity and that motorcycling is for everyone, uh, especially women.
1: That's your Neutral Motorcycle Collective, yeah. Yeah,
3: that's right. So Neutral Moto is sort of the umbrella brand. Uh, Gather Moto Meet is the is the event that we run once a month here in Brisbane,
1: and that's not just for women.
3: Not just for women, no. And and I think that that was really something I was quite uh, passionate about is that. Um, you know, neutral being a bit of a play on words around motorcycle gears, but also not really being specific about anyone's particular background or bikes or or anything. That the main thing to have in common or that we were looking for is people who love bikes in, in any way.
1: And for you, Gemma, since, since retiring from racing, as you mentioned, you coach riders and you run ride days and trail rides. What is it that you found that women tend to struggle with most around motorcycle riding?
2: Yeah, so most of what I run are ladies-only events. It's definitely my sort of little niche market and there are so many women who need a space created for them to feel welcome and not intimidated. To start with really is, is kind of the point. Ideally, in five, ten years' time, there's no need for ladies-only off-road events because you go to a ride and it's, you know, half-half men, women rather than 90% Men and then that tiny little group of women. Um, so, for women, it's definitely just a lack of confidence, I find. You know, women think that they're at level one and they're actually already at level four. <laughs> <laughs> so, the idea is to come and, and learn what to do correctly on the bike so they have confidence in their knowledge of what they're doing and then give them a space to have a practice and, and drop it and make mistakes with no judgment and just a really kind, friendly, encouraging environment. And then they go off riding with the new girls that they've met from the event and they go to the just the normal trial rides and it's strength in numbers. And then if they do cop a little bit of slack, it's not going to be enough to scare them away because they know that motorcycling is for them. So that's kind of the, the idea behind my events. And my motto is creating a women's dirt biking community. And it's so true. My whole racing career, I was sort of a little bit on my own because I wasn't one of the boys, but I also wasn't one of, you know, the boys' support crew like their girlfriends and stuff, so you're just kind of a bit in this no-man's land. But since running these events, I've met some awesome women that I now call friends, so I'm definitely creating this community
1: for myself as well. All right. Can we talk about the important stuff now? Helmet hair. (laughs) Is it an issue for for either of you, Gemma?
2: Um, I have a lot of hair. I'm very well known for my mane of curls. And so dirt bike riding, it's just disgusting. Dirt, sticks, dust, (laughs) sweat. It's a matted mess. But I have a little hairnet that attaches to the back of your helmet and it just your hair just sits in there at the back. And I, it's made for road and so I've been wearing it on the road and it stops your hair from getting knotty, like flapping around in the wind. Um, but I've actually, we've retrofitted it to fit one of my off-road helmets and I've been wearing it off-road riding as well and it, it is really keeping my hair, yeah, nicer and, and some of the dust out of it, which is cool. So it has been a problem for me, but I'm... Yeah, managing it a
3: bit better with my high tail hairnet <laughs> and ash. Oh, it's it's really not a problem for me, Amanda. I've got quite short hair, so yeah, but short hair can still
1: get out of place and look helmety.
3: <laughs> it can, it can look. The secret is I have a little bit of hair product and I have a comb in my bag. So as long as I've got a mirror, I'm generally pretty sorted. And you've got two of those on your bike, so when you get off the bike, as long as you've got your comb. You're pretty well sorted at the other end.
1: (laughs) And if all this talk of motorbikes has whetted your appetite, there's an exhibition on at the Queensland Gallery of Modern Art, GOMA, in Brisbane. It's called the Motorcycle Design Art. Desire. There's an amazing collection of machines in it, dating back to early in the 20th century through to the latest electric motorbikes, and it's on until the 26th of April. Gemma Wilson and Ash Ivory are two passionate motorcyclists. Gemma and Ash, really good to talk to you here on Sporty. Thank you.
2: Thanks very much for having me. Thanks, Amanda. I really
3: appreciate it.
1: Producer of Sporty is Damian Rabbit, and I'm Amanda Smith.